was uh, realizing that my, my suits um, have a little more dust on them in the closet and uh, come around Easter. I'm okay with that, actually. That's all right. They can keep the dust on them. And, um, anyway, so we're going to go take a break in our series and look at the classic uh, passage on the resurrection in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, if you would. 1 Corinthians 15, this is probably my favorite chapter in the Bible to preach. Uh, the first few verses are um, kind of revolutionized my worldview and thought about theology and the whole idea of gospel-centeredness of the, the core, those first few verses, first four or five verses of this chapter of what do we separate over, what do we cling over, what do all that, and it's those the gospel, the message that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So the foundational authority of the Bible, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus for us, his death, and then his bodily resurrection bookend with the authority of the Bible. And that's that. That's what I'm giving my life for. It's what I'm clinging to. That's what I want to rally around and unify around with others. And, uh, and, that, and then that has huge implications throughout the rest of that chapter. And so in our first service today, we looked at a message called For Us and the work of Christ and, and how that the Lord's table is not just a, a traditional thing. Of, I mean, it's a memorial, but it's no less than a memorial. It's more, and, but it is teaching so much doctrine about what Jesus did for us when he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And then in this service, we're going to be looking at the idea of first fruits, that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So I want to look at three verses in this passage, verses 20 through verse 23, and then we're going to stay in this passage. I'm going to read some other passages, but kind of allude to things throughout this passage in First Corinthians chapter 15. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 20 through 23, let's read those together. I'll read and follow along. This is God's word. But in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. And let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for this passage, and we ask that you would use it in our lives, that you would teach us about you being the firstfruits of the resurrection, and that we would have that, Lord, would you use me and use this offering of your word to work your will in your people and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to look at what it means that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection and what the implications of that are to us. We have four points of this this morning, and 
Um, so what is this? And this is really going to focus on the idea of union with Christ, of the union that we have with Christ. And you've heard us reference that. And the union with Christ is really one of those truths that I hope never gets old to you and that we all are always grasping it deeper and deeper. Um, so we're going to look at some implications that we're united with him for salvation, that our union with Christ is the basis of how we grow as Christians. And before we do that, I want to look at this imagery of first fruits. So it says here, and so so this chapter starts out about the gospel and about how um, the crucifixion, and then if you kind of glance through the verses of this long chapter, chapter 15, it talks about how uh, Christ appeared before 500 brothers at once, and the, some, of, some of those had fallen asleep, and it uses that language of those that are in Christ that have gone to be with the Lord, and, and so it says falling asleep, not that there's a soul sleep, that they're actually physically dead, but because of the hope of the resurrection for Christians, the Bible can use that language of those that are asleep. And then he talks about how as last of all to the, him that was untimely born, being Paul, and he talks about how he is the least of the apostles, but but because God's grace had appeared to him. Now, this wasn't just a, a grace that's like, okay, now I can live and do whatever I want. So he says in verse 10, because I worked harder than them all. He was a hardworking apostle. And then he goes into this debate about the resurrection of the dead and how some were saying, kind of like the Sadducees we've talked about, that there's not a resurrection of the dead. And he's saying if there's not a resurrection, then Christ is still dead. And, and he says if Christ isn't raised, verse 17, our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. So, so the bodily resurrection is is a fundamental of the faith. If you do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, I'll just go on record, you're not saved. Um, Jesus said, or Paul said in Romans, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So Mr. Liberal, mainline, denominational pastor out there today that says it's only a spiritual resurrection? No. The Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons that would say he is a spirit resurrected and not a physical resurrection? No. He is, if he is not risen, we are in our sins still. And so, um, and then he gives some application about those that have fallen asleep. And we all probably have loved ones uh, that have gone before us in the Lord or those that have passed away. And so he uses this idea. He says, Christ. And this has huge implications, not just for how at a funeral service of a loved one, but for how you live your life tomorrow and this afternoon. Christ is the first fruits of them that have fallen asleep. And then the first fruits, Christ the first fruits, and then it is coming, we who belong to Christ. And so it, when you hear the word first fruits, automatically there should be imagery come from Sunday school class or uh, from vacation Bible school or Bible class or some radio teaching of like the, the offerings of first fruits or some things from Leviticus about how they put certain grain offerings and things like this, that the idea was when a harvest was taken, the first of that would be given to the Lord. And the idea was that kind of sacri- that was kind of a ceremonially saying that the rest to follow was all given to the Lord. You see people do that when they start a business and the first dollar they make, put it in a frame, put it on the wall. It's the first fruits of that thing. Um, and so the first fruits, and so that imagery, so when he spoke of the resurrection, 
that the Jesus was the first fruits. There's also ideas, sometimes that, that word is used in the New Testament about when they go to a certain city and the first ones that were saved. Paul would say, you're the first fruits of our ministry here. Or other times that's used for different things. But here, in other places in the scripture, it refers to Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection. So the idea is if the first, the principle of the first, then the rest is committed to him as well. And that's why, like, one of the things, Sunday, it's hard for me to wrap my head around this sometimes, Sunday is the first day of the week, not the last day of the weekend. And we kind of think that way, but sometimes I have to remind myself, it's the first day of the week. So I'm worshiping on the first day of the week because Jesus rose on that day, and I'm also kind of giving him the first of my week. I'm giving him the first part of it. Uh, In our giving, uh, we would give God the first fruits, okay? I've, I've, I've gotten this, and Lord, I want to give you a portion of that off uh, right at the beginning of it, uh, of first fruits. And so, um, now, so when it comes to the resurrection, I want to give a big idea about this and then go through four different implications of it. And this is kind of a, duh, it's not really that deep. Um, the first fruits of the resurrection basically just means if there's something first, then there's something second and third and fourth. So it means when Jesus is the first fruits, it just means there's more to follow, right? Okay, so he is the forerunner of those that would follow. So John Piper said, the first fruits of the rest of the dead who belong to him. Um, in other words, the body of the risen Christ is part of the same harvest of all the other bodies that will be raised to glory at the last day. So there is a harvest. We're workers in the harvest. And there the resurrection is a harvest. And it's begun. And then the resurrection yet to come, it'll be finished. Isn't that an awesome thought? How God, I mean, I mean, we think it's cool when a comic book writer can, when they can make movies about comic books that take like 15 to 20 years to tell a big story. But God is somehow able to tell a story in millennia. This huge story of this resurrection of the first fruits. And so Christ as the first fruits implies that there are, there are many joys and implications and joys for the Christians as we would follow him in the resurrection. Now, there's a presupposition here that the text points out. So Christ is the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. And then verse 21 says, For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. So, so, we are, so this, is, this is where it goes into the, our union with Jesus. Because at first we were in union with Adam, and then we come into union with Christ. So our union with Adam is that we are in Adam all die. That we are dead in Adam. And the scriptures would say, death came by sin and death came upon all men. So, so, so there's a question there that we are all spiritually dead. And because we're spiritually dead, physical death is a consequence. Romans 6.23, James 1.15. Physical death is a consequence of that. But then we have to understand, okay, how in the world, why does Adam's sin affect me? What does Adam's sin have to do with me and you? And this is very important for us to get this right, because we have to understand the relationship between Adam's sin and our guilt. 
That is so important and essential for us to understand the relationship between Jesus' righteousness and our freedom from guilt. And so, so you can say, well, this is kind of, so we're kind of going little, little in, in, the, in, the, in the weeds here of the, the theology or a, a doctrine of sin. But it's because if we don't understand the connection with us and Adam, we're not going to understand the union with us and Jesus, okay? And so, so our connection with Adam is that we inherit sin nature, that we are all sinners. And you've heard me use the phrase over and over and over, we're sinners by birth and by choice. And I say that on purpose because there's some ways we need to understand that we in Adam all sin and that we are sinners. Uh, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that we're born in sin. And David would say, I was conceived in iniquity. Not that his mom was, you know, but it was that he was born. And every parent that's had it or, or every babysitter or every nursery worker knows that we are sinners from the womb right? You don't have to teach that. You don't have to train that. You don't have to teach your kids to lie and pout and manipulate and things like this. It just comes natural. They're born that way. We all are. And so there's some, so what is the connection between us and Adam? And there's some wrong answers. And the wrong answers, one is the idea that there is no connection between our sin and Adam. Adam was just a bad example. You know, he's a great, great grandfather that was just a bad example of of he and Eve eating the fruit that was forbidden. And that's what's called Pelagianism, that there's no connection between us and Adam, and we're all just morally neutral, and Adam was just a bad example. And we know that's not scriptural. We, we know that that's, I mean, the whole idea of uh, there needing to be a seed of the woman that would come to crush the serpent's head uh, because Adam's passed this sinful tendency down. But then there are some folks that would say, well, it's not like fully, like there's no connection between Adam, but it's just kind of semi. And that's the idea of semi-Pelagianism where there's, there's, there's a, you know, we kind of have a, con- it's not a condition, it's more of just a tendency, and we only sin when we do voluntary acts. So we're innocent until we actually commit a known sin. And so sin is just something we do. It's not a, uh, it's just a type of behavior. So that you can do, until you do a bad thing, you're not a sinner. Um, and both of these type of ideas, particularly semi-Pelagianism, can lead to an idea that we would know more popularly of Arminianism that would say that, you know, we, man's got a little good in him and we just kind of maybe are sick a little bit, but we still have some good in us that can, a light that we can, that we can like initiate uh, efforts about coming to God. Um, and, uh, and there might be some jumper cables that God has to add to that, but, but we still have the fire in our engine a little bit. But the problem with that is it just goes against most of the Bible. Because Jesus would say, you know, you can't come to the Father unless you're drawn, or that, that we're, we're, we're dead in trespasses and sin, and that, that no one does good. None seek God. And that, that we're sinful, that we are sinners by birth and by choice. And then there was a, um, so both of those ideas really make salvation not something God does, but a possibility that humans can come up with. And so there's no uh, efficiency, affection, there, there, there's the, the, the call of God is not effectual in the sense, or because it's just something that's a possibility. So Jesus' death and offer is just for a possibility, not for a certain thing that he said he was doing. 
But then there's this new idea. Well, it's not new. It's a few hundred years old now in New Haven and called the, and it's kind of part of um, New England theology, the new school th- th- thought. And this thought was, that it was very popular, that the, that the sin was just a tendency that we had. We tend towards sin, but we're not really guilty. Um, people will only be guilty if they sin. Um, but there's this old evangelist named Dr. Bob Jones Sr. that reminded us that men are not sinners because they sin. Men sin because they're sinners. Um, and so the Bible asserts that I put in that little phrase, we are sinners by birth and by choice. Either way, we're all guilty. We are sinners by birth and by choice. And this is where the connection with us and Adam comes, that we are born with a sin nature. And in the basis of that sin nature, we make choices every day, probably every minute to sin. And this is why we are in Adam and we need a new Adam, Christ. So this is, Christ is just as we are the headship of Adam and us, Christ is ours. So Christ, when we, so when we believe on Christ and we depend upon him, we repent and put our faith in him, we are united with Christ and no longer with Adam's sin. And Christ is the first fruit. So then, so Christ is risen from the grave and he's the first fruit of the resurrection. So I, uh, I want to ask this question. Who raised Jesus from the grave? And, and, and so this is actually kind of a, a, a tough one because there's, the Bible speaks of two different sources of the resurrection of Jesus. So there are some texts that say the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Like so Acts 2 and Romans 6, 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 1, uh, the beginning of Galatians but then there are other passages of Scripture that say Christ had, uh, was part of the resurrection. Like in John 1, he'd say, I lay down my life and I take it up. That no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up. And so really, I'm going to say, so who, who, what played part, the Father or the Son in the resurrection? Yes, both. Both the Father and the Son had part in the resurrection, that Christ took up his own life, but the Father raised him from the dead as well. And, it, and really what this says is that Jesus is in charge of his own life, and he is in charge of the harvest. He is in charge of the harvest of souls, and he is in charge of the harvest of the resurrection, and he is the first fruits of the resurrection. Power even over his own life. His divine power holds complete authority and sway over the whole thing. And so what are some lessons for us to get from this, from the, that he is the first fruits of the resurrection, that, he, that we are united with him in our sin? We need Christ um, because we're in Adam, but in Christ, he is the first fruits, and we can be united with Christ and be in union with Jesus. So what does union with Jesus mean for us when it comes to the idea that he is the first fruits of the resurrection? Glad you asked. Here's four answers. Number one, it accredits our justification. So there's one passage in the Bible that explicitly links the resurrection with 
our justification or our being made right with God. And that is the passage in Romans chapter 4 and verse 25 that the, 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 the old hymn, Glorious Day, um, that was reworked in the tune there uh, by um, Mark Hall of Casting Crowns that the choir sung as our opening song that you know as living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he's carried my sins far away. Rising he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, oh glorious day. And so Romans chapter 4 verse 25 says that he is risen for our justification. So this is so the resurrection is not just this theological idea it's this historic fact that God who delivered he was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. So what does it mean that Jesus was risen for our justification? Well, some of you probably go through this regularly. You go to uh, a store, a restaurant, a food establishment, um, and um, uh, and you use a card to pay with. You know, you pull out, and, and, and it's so confusing. It used to be you just swiped it and stuck in your pen, or so here's my MVB debit card that's kind of dog-eared on the end and some of these have the chip that you stick in and some you swipe and some even have the cool little thing where you just kind of tap it you know and um and so you can just have someone wave by your pocket and pay and that's kind of scary right and um um and so I, I had a meeting friday after chapel of school uh, and met the person up panera bread and uh um, and, and I got them a drink and, and uh, stuck my card in. And, you know, and sometimes it'll be really fast and you pull it out. And other times it's like, you know, don't remove your card. And you, sometimes it's really quick. So I stuck my card in and then pulled it out. And I pulled it out before it said remove your card on the screen. And then it does that swirly thing for a long time. And they're not going to give me my food until that thing quits swirling, right? because they don't know the payment's been processed, right? So I have to stick it in again, and I think it was starting to rain then, and or I don't know, maybe the rain had some, maybe the internet was slow or whatever. The little men had to run up and down the wires to, you know, the internet. But it goes really slow, and then it comes up on the screen. It's almost like this magical thing, payment approved. And when it says payment approved, I'm not embarrassed for this person I'm meeting, right? Now I'm like, oh, because that's so embarrassing. Like, oh, you can't even figure out how to swipe your own card and what, what not, right? Oh, the payment's approved. The resurrection of Jesus is the sign that the payment for our salvation has been approved. It's the, it's the certification. It's the payment's approved. Here's the deposit slip. It's paid. It's done. It's, uh, we use the term accredited. You know, like, is that degree accredited? Does it have a certification? Has it been approved? Is it solid? And the, when it says that Christ is risen for our justification, it says that payment, God the Father has accepted the payment, and it's not swirling anymore. Payment approved. Here's your receipt. It's done. So what that means, my friend, is that the resurrection is the stamp of approval of the Father, that it is done, that Jesus' mission is accomplished. Someone said that Easter is the amen of God, the alleluia of men. That Jesus' active and passive obedience secured our resurrection, that uh, uh, secured the, this fact that his death showed his willingness to save, his resurrection showed his power to save. 
And it's only because he lives that we know that the ransom he paid for our sin was sufficient and that the sacrifice was accepted by God. It's done. The payment's there. So what do you think that ought to do to your guilt feelings over your sin? The payment's already been approved. The receipt is already printed. It's done. Why are you still worried whether you paid for your smoothie or not? You have the receipt in your hand. Why are you feeling guilt that you might have to make up for sins of, 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 that you committed a decade ago? Where they're under the blood. The payment's been approved. The resurrection is the reminder of that the payment has been accepted. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, if the Lord Jesus Christ had not literally risen physically from the grave, we could never be certain that he'd ever really finished his work. If he has died for our sins, we must not only be certain that he has died, but that he has finished dying and that there's no longer death. So when God raised his son from the dead, he was proclaiming to the whole world, he has done everything. He has fulfilled every demand. And here he is the risen, therefore I am satisfied in him. So justification, that risen for our justifications means that the legal and the financial work of your salvation is paid. So to justify means that God declares them to be righteous who were not righteous, that we are united with Christ. We're in union with Christ. He made him to be sin for us who do no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So it's not just the removal of our debt that it's paid in full, but it's also giving to us the righteousness of Jesus. So it's not just an overdraft fee has been removed, it's that the wealth of Jesus has been deposited to your account. So justification is not just canceling our debt, but in giving us the righteousness of Jesus. It's, it's saying, we used to say, justification is it's just as if I'd never sinned, but it's more than that. It's just as if I lived his life. I get that. Jesus doesn't merely give us a clean slate and then stick us back to to wait until we mess up again. No, 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 no. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us, as Romans 3 says, the righteousness from God comes through faith to all who believe. So this is the basis by which we are admitted into communion or participation with Jesus. How do you want to have union with Jesus? By justification that comes through faith. Ephesians says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, wherewith he loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, has made us alive or quickened us together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him. United, first fruits of the resurrection, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians verse 4 and 6 of Ephesians 2, if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. 2 Timothy 2. Um, so there's so many implications. So if, and then, okay, I'm risen with him. Well, Colossians would say, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above and not the things of this earth. There's so many implications of this. But how do you get this? Um, so you, you have peace with God. It's paid in full. 
The life you now live, you live by the faith of the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Um, So um, how do you get this justification? You receive it. You received. Paul said here at the beginning, we're in 1 Corinthians 15, this that you've received. You you receive it. How do you get saved? You you receive it. You repent and believe and receive this. I don't want my sin. I want to rely on God and his son. So what will send you to hell is that lack of faith. John 3 said, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the Son of God. So, it is the object of our faith. You say, well, I don't have that much faith. How can I, can I have enough faith to save me? No, God gives you that faith. And it's, the, it's not the faith, you know, it's not the faith that saves you. It's not, oh, I really believe and I really depend on him. No, it's the object of the faith. I mean, the tiniest mustard seed of faith dependent upon Christ, it is the object of the faith that gives value to the faith. And so, believe on Christ. The what, what you believe on Christ with is not your words and your actions and your deeds, but your heart. The organ of faith is your heart. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man receive, believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made known unto salvation. And so it's a matter of us, our head, our emotions, and our will, Receive, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And if you've never done that, that is our plea to you today, to receive and believe on Christ. So the first implication that Christ is the, resur- is the first fruits of the resurrection is that it gives assurance of our salvation, accredits the payment is in, paid in full. It shows us that. The second is this, that the resurrection, the first fruits of the resurrection, gives us in turn resurrection life. This is our res- this is regeneration. In the first Peter it says that we've been born again to a living hope or a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the hope that we have in this life is through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and we've been born again or regenerated, uh, born again, generated again, regenerated. And so we re- and we receive that now but it's not made consummated and full until the resurrection because we still have weak bodies that get sick and get the flu or get hurt when we fall off slides or get bruised when we do things or get sore when we work out and we didn't stretch or didn't rest or whatever or we're just getting older or get tired. We still have these type of bodies we also still have remaining sin, struggling with it, all of us. You sense this battle, we all battle this every day, right? Um, but the resurrection gives us that resurrection life. In our spirits, we have the resurrection, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave. So we already read Ephesians 2. He has made us alive together with Christ. And then Colossians 3, if you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. And then so Paul connects the resurrection power of Christ, the power of the resurrection, that Jesus, the power to bring himself up to pick up his own life with the spiritual power that we have working in us. In fact, he said this explicitly in Ephesians 1, verses 19 and 20, that the same power working in us uh, is the same power that rose Christ from the grave. 
So the same power helping you restrain sin and follow Christ is the same power that rose Christ from the grave. Um, Turn with me, if you wouldn't mind, to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, Paul again connects this with um, the, the resurrection of Jesus and our union with Jesus with how we battle indwelling sin. So he says, um, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, or no, don't let it ever be, a double negative. How can we who died still live in it? Do you not know that we have been baptized into Christ? We were baptized into his death, that we were buried therefore with him by baptism unto death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life? For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then he goes on, starting in verse 6, about our old self and what's going on in our life right now. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider, or the King James says there, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to obey its passions or lusts. Do not present your bodies members of sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those that have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So, the battle of remaining sin, the connection with the power that comes in the resurrection should imply that there. And so going back to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17 says there, and if Christ has not been risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. There's a connection between the resurrection and our sins and what we're doing. So the power, the, the, the second lesson or implication of Christ being the first fruits is that the resurrection gives us that power of resurrection life as well. So for our walk in this world, being risen together with Christ, for embattling sin, resisting it, and reckoning ourselves to be dead in sin, and also for our witness. Uh, remember as soon as the book of Acts opened, the re- after the ascension of Christ? You will be my witness. After that, which you've received power, the same way that Christ came, he'll ascend and you'll receive power and be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So the resurrection gives us resurrection life. Thirdly, the first fruits. Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection. An implication for us is this, that that we will have a resurrected body as well. And the key text for this is, is in 1 Corinthians 6 and also in First Corinthians, verse 20 of this chapter we're in, that God raised the Lord who will also raise us up by his power. And then verse 20 that we read, 
but the fact that Christ is risen from the dead, the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. There's a resurrected body. And, and some people can dig into this, like and you, could, you can chase rabbits for years on this. What will our resurrected body be like? Um, you know, because Jesus' body was physical. I mean, touching hands, feet, side, ate, breathed. He breathed on them. So it's, an, it's a reanimated, it's a physical body. But, you know, the door's locked to the upper room and he appears he passes, I mean, so you're like, okay, and then people can, you know, it's going to be a real body, and our body's going to be like Jesus's. Now, does that mean, okay, there was one exception, I think, my opinion, and Wayne Grudem agrees with this, so blame him, um, so that some people would say, well, because the, the, the scars are on Jesus's hands in his reanimated body, does that mean our scars are still going to be on our body, you know, and I'd say, well, it tells us it's not going to be full of pain, and that there's things to be taken away. So I think there's probably a big exception in Jesus' scars because they kind of mean something, right? Um, whereas, like, you know, as a kid in the 80s when we had those metal um, pedals on our bikes, you remember those? those? Those torture devices? Yeah? So I have this giant scar on my calf from a pedal on a bike taking a hunk of flesh out of it. I'm not anticipating that one being there in my resurrected body, you know, and maybe you have some that you'll be glad are gone as well, right? Um, and, uh, it's, but, but, so, but it tells us that we are going to have a resurrected body like him. There's this ripening harvest of the rest of the harvest that what it will be like that we'll have a resurrected body. And also just a BTW on this, that the fact that it's a physical body reassures what God said at the creation that when he created these things, he said it was good. And it was very good. That, that spiritual and new life and the new heavens and new earth is not this like nirvana or get, uh, uh, where there's total separation between the physical and the spiritual. That it is a new body. And that we will have a resurrected body. And God can figure all that out. He can figure out whether that's through cremation or burial at sea or burial in a tomb or outside of an abortion clinic. God can reanimate that and bring those resurrected bodies to, to life and, and make them what they will be new. They will be special. They will be eternal. And the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 talks about how the, the, um, the, 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 the uh, corruptible will put on incorruption and, all, and God will work that. So it's an assurance of a resurrected body. And there's an old gospel song, I'll Have a New Body. Uh, there'll be no pain. There'll be no more strife. And some of you remember that song. Fourthly, some practical implications for this life. So, so the resurrection, bod, the resurrection, the first fruits of the resurrection gives us, accredits our justification. It assures us that we have resurrection power as well and also assures us of a resurrected body for ourselves. Uh, uh, there's a, that um, phrase there, um, the power that raised him from the grave now works in us to powerfully save. He frees our hearts to live his grace. Go tell of his goodness. That, 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 this, the power that raised him animates us to live this resurrection life. So there's some implications for us. One is that we should continue in this life of following Christ. So you're in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at the very last verse. All this implication of the resurrection and uh, what it is for us. He says, so, therefore, looking back at what he said about the resurrection, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, 
unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Sometimes we can talk about how those spiritual people, they're so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good. And that's kind of a secularist mindset of, of, of going against that. that. And this, what this shows us is that we should be committed because Christ has been raised from the dead, you, we, and I, we too, should continue steadfastly in the Lord's work. That everything we do for the king, do, do on this earth has eternal consequence. It should motivate us to keep persevering and following the Lord and being faithful no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the results. So be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's not in vain. This flies in the face of the secular agenda of our age. Secular, meaning the here and now. And the sick at non, that which is here, be involved. What, don't be so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. And this is this whole philosophy stuff of reason and the secular age and the indoctrination of man and all this. That what is here and now is all that matters. And even with the burning of um, Notre Dame uh, this week, and it reminds us of the history that, that you know, and I'm, you know, obviously we're in a Protestant church here, but like, uh, but, but during the French Revolution, and they took the statue of Mary out and put the statue to the gods of the cult of reason and the cult of the supreme being. And it was all about the reason of man and that which is here and now, and that there's not an eternity. So our worldview, if you believe in the resurrection, your worldview is totally opposite of only focusing on what's here and right now. Because guess what? Sometimes what's here and right now really stinks, right? And if you believe in the resurrection, one of the huge implications of that is you can say, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because your labor is not in vain. Because what you do right now counts for eternity. So mom, when it's 3 a.m. or dad, when it's 3 a.m. and you're taking care of a little one and you're like, what in the world does this have to do? It's like, you know what? This right now counts for eternity. When you're dead tired and you're tired of cleaning the same nursery and teaching the same kids and doing the same stuff in the same building that you've been doing it in and it doesn't, it's like right now counts for eternity. That I don't have to think of just the here and now. That there's an eternal aspect of this because of the resurrection. It gives me hope of that. So I can think of the eternal in that. And it also should encourage me towards that heavenly goal because verse 17 says, if Christ has not been risen from the grave, your faith is futile and we're still in our sins. But, but those also who have fallen asleep have perished. And if, we, for, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So it's not just on this earth. So we seek the heavenly goal, and as I alluded to earlier in the message in Colossians 3, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. That our affections are not just for the things of this earth. That doesn't mean it's bad to have nice things. It's not bad to have a Nintendo Switch or a nice guitar or a nice Jeep or a nice car or a nice truck. But that we all, But it says, don't set your affections here because you know it's not going to last. If you be then risen with Christ, seek those things which are above and not the things of this earth. And then, as we saw in Romans 6, stop yielding yourselves to sin. 
Because the, res- the power of the resurrection, you can say no. You can reckon yourself to be dead indeed unto sin. You're risen with Christ. You're united with Jesus. And that whole idea of union with Christ is huge in this. That he is the first fruits. They follow. And there's also, because of the hope of the resurrection, the hope of those that have gone before us in the Lord, that we'll be united with them again. Isn't that an awesome thing to think of that? And uh, there's, a, there's a side implication there. That the only thing you can take with you to heaven is other people. So focus on that. That's, you're not going to take the cars and the stuff and the, I got this big of a deer and that, not that. You, but you can take grandkids. You can take kids. You can take neighbors. You can take coworkers. You can take loved ones. And yes, it's there, the ones that have to receive Christ, but you can work on them. And, and and so you, you don't want that to be, oh, they're not here because I didn't take an awkward moment to, to, to go weird and say, hey, I want to talk to you about this. When can we, you know, I want to talk to you about how you, do you know Christ? If you were to die today, do you, would you go to heaven? Can I show you, take, can I, here's this, can you read this track sometime when you get a moment? Um, you want to read our Bible together to take those moments to give it, it should give us an evangelistic passion. I want to close with reminding us of an old hymn, an old gospel song, actually. And all the world around me I see is loving care. And though my heart grows weary, I never will despair. I know that he is leading through all the stormy blast. The day of his appearing will come at last. So when things are bad, we have hope in the resurrection. And so rejoice, rejoice, old Christian. Lift up your voice and sing eternal hallelujahs to Jesus Christ, our King. The hope of all who seek him, the help of all who find, none other is so loving, so good and kind. And so, as you all know, he lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know, how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. That he's changed, he's given you that resurrection power, that resurrection power. So I hope you'll take the implications of the first fruits of the resurrection and let it apply to yourself and your life this week. Let's pray.